Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast, number 206. We're counting down to OIS at SECO. It's happening on February 21st in New Orleans. Please go to OIS.net to register. If you do go to OIS.net, you'll see the agenda for OIS at SECO. It's up there, and one of the uh, panelists is our guest today, Justin Schweitzer of Vance Thompson Vision. Justin is an optometrist who specializes in advanced glaucoma, refractive surgical clinical care, and interior segment pathology. He is uh, going to speak again on our glaucoma panel, and Justin and I caught up a bit, learned about how he found his way into optometry and some of the things that have him excited uh, about the optometry field going forward. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Justin, and I hope you'll join him and me at OIS at SECO. It's happening again on February 21st in New Orleans. Go to OIS.net to register. Now let's get into this conversation with Justin Schweitzer of Vance Thompson Vision. Justin Schweitzer, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. I think this uh, this entitles uh, Vance Thompson Vision to uh, a free podcast. It's the third the third professional we're talking from that practice. So I think you you folks have the lead for sure. Well, I don't think we would argue with that. That's a that's a, an honor. So I, I appreciate you uh, making me the third one uh, of the group. I hope you didn't mind the wait. You'll be on our glaucoma panel at next month's uh, OIS at SECO meeting. Uh, and we won't get into the particulars of that panel, but I do want to talk about your glaucoma care. Just briefly, what are your thoughts on our, our having an OIS affiliated with SECO? Do you, do you anticipate a lot of uh, excitement from your uh, colleagues in optometry? Yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm uh, pleasantly uh, excited that, that, that it's happening at SECO. You know, I had the opportunity to, to go to an OIS event recently, and that was exciting and, and, and had a lot of uh, great feedback, great interaction, uh, learned a lot. And I expect nothing less uh, with the SECO event. Excellent. Well, we're excited to put it together. It's going to be a, a great day. I typically start off these podcasts uh, trying to, to learn a little more about our guests, specifically how they found their way into the profession uh, that they're in. And I'm curious, I, I read a bit about your background and we'll get into the details, but but yours sounded like a familiar story that, and, and it's, it's um, I've, I've interviewed a lot of physicians and I think optometry is one of the the only ones where I repeatedly hear that sort of a childhood experience with a, uh, a professional sort of helped lead a person into that that profession. Uh, so, talk a bit about your your the, the influences and, and and what led to your becoming an optometrist. Yeah, my childhood uh, optometrist definitely influenced uh, me to 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 look into the profession. Both my parents were in the medical field. My mom was a physical therapist. Uh, my dad, a hospital administrator for many, many years. And so they both had backgrounds in, in uh, the healthcare industry. And so I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare. Growing up, uh, severely nearsighted and spent a lot of time with my optometrist. And being the type of person he was, he just influenced me as I got uh, closer and closer to college. And Really, by the time I was a senior in high school, had my mind set on this was the profession that I wanted to chase after. And then when I went to college, my chemistry teacher also had a major impact of uh, 
pushing me or discussing with me the movement to to optometry and had really got me interested as previous students that he'd worked with were, were interested in the, in, in the profession. And so the rest was kind of history after that. It didn't, I didn't think of too many other things than, than optometry after that point in time. Can you recall what it was about your experiences with your optometrist that made, that really resonated with you and, and, and kind of spoke to you in a, in a professional way? I think that stuck most with me was just the, the experience with him, the way that he took care of me, the way that he spent time with me. You know, growing up, you obviously see other doctors and I didn't always get that experience at, at other places. And that's not being, I'm not trying to be negative to other professions or other uh, physicians, but, you know, he would take the time to get to know me. And at that time in your life, you're, you're a child, you know, you didn't experience that with other doctors. You thought, this is kind of fun. This gives you the opportunity to spend some time with your patients, to, to get to know them a little bit. Um, and, and he took that time and, and seemed that, that way all the time. So, uh, that, that resonated with me. And how did that experience or how does that experience, uh, color how you do your job today? Are you mindful of that when, when dealing with patients, particularly, uh, younger patients? The customer experience is, is so important to me. And, and I use the word customer, but you know, it's a patient, the patient experience. I want, I want them to feel like they had the time with me. And it brings up kind of a funny story when I first started with, um, uh, Dr. John Birdall, he he uh, asked me to join him. It was about six years ago, and and I'd been in private practice for you know a few years. And we sat down, and one of the first questions he asked me is, you know, how do you see yourself um, seeing patients? You know, how much time do you want with your patients? Is that important to you? You know, how do you want to connect with your patients? And you know, I said, well, I'd like to, you know, I, I do like to connect with my patients. I'd probably like to have you know a half hour, forty five minutes with patients, and. And he chuckled a little bit and uh, he asked me the same question, you know, about a year later and, you know, in a high volume uh, ophthalmology practice where we're seeing a a bunch of patients, uh, a half hour just doesn't work. But that didn't take away the ability to connect with patients. And so we joke around about that a lot is the perception of how much time you need to spend with patients to connect with them. And, And I don't think you need a half hour to 45 minutes to connect with a patient. It can be five to 10 minutes uh, to connect with that patient and, you know, make an impact uh, in their lives. And, and one thing I always keep in mind is, you know, we're seeing as doctors, sometimes 10 patients a day, sometimes 20, sometimes 30, maybe even 40. And we have to remember that each one of those patients, the one patient that may be the highlight of their day coming to your clinic for eye care. And that's easy for us as the doctor forget because we got 40 of these patients to see. But for that one patient, it could be the highlight of their day. But for some, it may be the most important thing they're doing that day, depending on what is going on with their eyes. And to keep that perspective is really important. No, that's a great point. And it's, I think, something we can all uh, hold on to in our, in our professional times. But you're right. I think those, those moments where you're going into have a very important problem solved, your, your, your vision suffering uh, is, is something you look forward to. Uh, you circle on the calendar. The day comes. You're excited to get there. And, uh, and if it all goes well, you walk away very satisfied. So I think that's a, that's a great perspective to have. So what, uh, where did you go to school and, uh, and did you move into to, to private practice uh, directly after that? Yeah, so I went to uh, Pacific uh, University College of Optometry, uh, which is out in Forest Grove, Oregon. And then after college, I did go right into private practice, uh, moved back to uh, South Dakota. So I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota is where I moved to and spent 
a few years in private practice and, and did enjoy it. I, I enjoyed private practice, but I found out that I really had a desire to be more heavily involved on the disease side of optometry. And although I saw some disease in that particular practice setting, I was interested also in the surgical side of what was happening in optometry and even ophthalmology. And when the opportunity presented to spend time and work on a daily basis with uh, John, uh, it, it just fit me perfectly on, on what my goals were. And I'm happy I made the move and, and really haven't looked back and, and love what I do every day. So what are your, uh, your duties there at, uh, at Vance Thompson? So my day-to-day activities at Vance Thompson Vision is to manage and run a clinic for uh, one of our surgeons, uh, Dr. John Bertel, who is cornea and glaucoma trained. And what he has asked uh, myself to do and, and my partners is to preoperatively prepare patients for surgery. So we have discussions with them if it's involving cataract surgery on their lens options, what to expect during surgery. Uh, we treat dry eye if necessary, rule out any pathology, um, spend the time with the patient to have that discussion before they go uh, into the operating room. And then uh, we do the same thing with glaucoma patients. We do a lot of minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries here. We deal with uh, corneal patients uh, involving DMEC and DSEC, so partial thickness cornea transplants. And then we do refractive surgery as well. And so we're having discussions about um, LASIK, PRK, um, smile procedure. And then we also handle some of the post-operative care. Not always are we doing all post-operative care as we are a fairly, um, or we are a highly co-managed uh, area. So a lot of our referring optometrists do send patients to us, and a lot of those go back to those, those doctors. But really, I kind of view myself as, as an in-between um, for those doctors that maybe aren't comfortable with handling some of the disease that shows up in their practices. And uh, for a patient that maybe isn't quite ready for surgery as well, uh, to go in the operating room. And uh, so a resource for those optometrists in the community as well. I want to talk to you in a moment about, uh, about what you're doing on glaucoma, but uh, I do want to also hit upon uh, dry eye. You mentioned dry eye. How have, uh, how have the advances that we've seen in dry eye, the Zydras, the, the, uh, the True Tears and the like, how, how has that impacted your ability to care for patients who, who come uh, looking for some relief from that uh, painful condition? Yeah, it's, it's changed completely for me in the last six years. Uh, when I first started uh, here at Van Sumps Division, you know, we treated dry eye, we pay attention to it, uh, but didn't have the ability to, for example, image meibomian glands. So you made the diagnosis just clinically looking at them. To have that ability is, is powerful. Not only powerful to be able to image it and, and prove to yourself that there's a problem there, but from an educational standpoint. And that goes with a lot of the point of care testing that's now available with, you know, tear labs and looking for inflammation to be able to uh, do non-invasive tear breakup time. All these things could be educational for the patient, but they also help the doctor understand the type of dry that, that you're dealing with. And after you do this point of care testing, the beautiful thing is now we have therapeutics to attack the disease as well as ways to treat, you know, meibomian gland dysfunction. Uh, so it's, it's changed so much even in the last, you know, four to six years. And we're treating dry much more aggressively than we ever did before on these pre-surgical patients. And, and it doesn't matter what type of patient it is. If it's a glaucoma patient that's going in for surgery, or it's a cataract patient, or it's a cornea transplant patient, 
or it's a refractive patient, they're getting much more aggressive dry therapy than ever before. Do you find uh, patients are more receptive to one treatment over, over the others? Are they favoring a, a drug or are they favoring new devices? Any, anything really catching the, uh, the, 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 the fancy of, of people who are uh, looking for relief from dry? Well, I think that each case is so unique. And so, you know, some patients don't have significant meibomian gland dysfunction. And, and so they, they don't need aggressive treatment in that area, but they may be, they may have more aqueous deficient dry eye. Now, a lot of times those two conditions are, are together. Um, but just having, you know, the ability to be able to treat, you know, both at the same time or each separately, uh, has made a difference. And, and yes, patients, will at times respond better to certain, you know, medications than they will others. And that's the same in the glaucoma world. Some patients will respond better, you know, their IOPs will respond better to certain medications than others, but it's a case-by-case basis. And so um, I can't specifically say that, you know, one particular treatment is a fix-all for all different types of dry eye. Well, let's uh, now focus on uh, on glaucoma. That's what you'll be talking about uh, on February 21st at OIS at SECO. I know you've, uh, you, what, what sort of work have you, you done in this space? I know you've, uh, got in research interest in this space and, uh, have, have, uh, belonged to obviously the, the, uh, the many, uh, organizations of, uh, of optometry that are centered on, uh, on this condition. But what, uh, what, what is most interesting to you about, uh, about glaucoma? Yes. Yeah, so my, when I first started here at Vance Thompson Vision, I wasn't sure where my passion was going to be. Was it going to be an anterior segment disease? Was it going to be in glaucoma? Was it going to be in you know, refractive surgery? And, and I have a passion for all of them, but I would say my where where my the, the largest passion ever, where my um, interests have really been generated now, is in the glaucoma space. And part of that has to do with the emergence of minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. And although I don't do those procedures, just to have the ability to have something to fill a gap for patients that maybe we are medically managed to the maximum, but we don't want to have a tube shunner or filtration surgery or trabeculectomy surgery done on them um, it is a powerful tool. And so being involved with the management of those has been really nice. And so that generated a lot of interest for me. And then with the emergence of new medications now recently and the future with drug delivery, uh, it's just an exciting space. And so I continue to find myself so interested uh, in in glaucoma. So the patients coming in to your, your your practice, what are they looking for? Are they coming in sort of aware of the advances on glaucoma? Do they know about MIGS? Do they know about some of the other uh, treatment options that they now have that they might not have had a few years ago? I would say it's it's gotten much better than ever before, mainly because you know five, five six years ago the first MIGS were just getting approved, just starting to be utilized, and so from an optometry standpoint, a lot of my colleagues. Uh, didn't know anything, didn't know a lot about a lot of them, didn't know how they worked, didn't understand the mechanism of them, you know, didn't understand the data on it. Now at all the major meetings, even state meetings, you know, this stuff is being discussed. And so you know, it's becoming more and more known. And so uh, in our particular region, we've been talking about it at educational symposiums for for six years. And so doctors are aware of it. And they are sending patients in usually, and, and typically it's patients for MIGS that have a visually significant cataract, have mild to moderate glaucoma. And those are a, a, a large majority of patients that we see here 
um, to take care of from a, from a glaucoma standpoint. So uh, what sort of are patients sort of opting for or are, do they have a preference? I guess I'm asking the same question I did for dry eye, but uh, are they open to, to MIGS? Are they, are they pushing for uh, sort of uh, procedures that will, will take care of things in a surgical way? Are they still sort of leaning toward uh, toward medicines? Because, you know, it's, it's my understanding that 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 compliance with, with glaucoma medic- medicines can be difficult. It's not something folks want to take. Are they looking for sort of a, a more permanent fix through, uh, through surgical procedures? What's the, the mindset of, of uh, glaucoma patients these days? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And it, it does vary by patient to patient. I think for me, I've always been a big believer in patients need to know their options. They need to know, you know what's out there, what's available to them. Let them be involved in the decision. Let them drive the bus to a degree. Obviously, I don't want them to take the bus and, and drive it off a cliff. Um, that's my role as their eye care provider to make sure that they don't do something that's going to harm them. But I also want them to know what are options and what's reasonable. And so a patient that comes in with a cataract and they're disappointed in the way they're seen, to me, those are prime patients to be considered for surgical management with the MIGS procedure. And those are patients that I'll have a discussion with and tell them the advantages of MIGS, but also tell them the risks and what to expect postoperatively. Thankfully, you know, the risk with a lot of these minimum invasive procedures, especially when you look at the different types of trabecular meshwork types of devices, the risk is really low. The studies have shown that the majority of those procedures uh, have the same safety profile as cataract surgery. Now, when you have a patient that comes in that is pseudophagic um, or, or someone that doesn't have a visually significant cataract but has glaucoma, then I think having a good discussion with them about what the new medications from a glaucoma standpoint are out there are important. I think just talking to them about glaucoma medications in general is important because some of those patients are going to say, you know, I would rather take a crack at this with lower my pressure in a conservative fashion with a glaucoma medication versus doing something inside my eye that does have a bit more risk because anything inside there is going to be a bit more risky. Uh, and I'm perfectly fine with that. As long as they know the option and I feel like I could get their pressure to a reasonable spot or at least slow down or stop progression, I'm perfectly fine letting them choose uh, the medication side or choose to go down the surgical route. And those that, that go the surgical route, those who have, who have undergone uh, MIGS, what 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 are their uh, what sort of feedback are you getting uh, post surgery? Are, are people generally happy with the results? Uh, any interesting observations you have uh, after the procedures have been done? I'm actually doing uh, some research and doing some some work on patients post operative after MIGS to understand: is it helping their ocular surface? Are they more comfortable? Are they feeling? better once it's done because there hasn't been a lot of work done there. We know that there has been work done looking at glaucoma medications and the prevalence of meibomian gland dysfunction and ocular surface disease. And we know there's some contributory factors there. In general, if a patient could get off medications, it's probably going to improve their quality of life. And so some patients will comment how nice it is not to be taking a medication after a MIGS procedure. Now, one thing to say about that with MIGS procedures is the goal with, with a MIGS procedure is not to take a patient that's on three glaucoma medications and get them to zero. Most of those procedures are not efficacious enough to get the pressure that low. But if you have a patient that's on one glaucoma medication, it is reasonable to talk to them and let them know that there is a potential 
that you could get off that medication. And if they do that, I think that's, that's a win. But MIGs are not procedures that are going to eliminate glaucoma medications completely. So glaucoma medications aren't going away. Uh, but if we could take patients from three drops to two or two to one, I think we're making their lives better. And we're spending a lot of time, obviously, talking about me because it's a it's a huge space in the area. But but let's talk a little more about the the pharma options. Are, are there new treatments coming out? Anything you're tracking uh, that uh, that is really exciting you, and, and and that you think glaucoma patients should be excited about as well? Recently, as 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 you've probably have heard, Tom, there's there's some new glaucoma medications out. You know, we have a new prostaglandin on the market uh, with Visalta. We have a new completely different drug class, uh, rock inhibitors with the approval of uh, Ropressa. And so those have been interesting additions to the pharmaceutical or, or glaucoma management with, with medicine, uh, with drops. And I was welcomed. You know, we, we want different options uh, for our patients. Uh, when you think of the rock inhibitors, you know, the definition of maximal medical therapy has been changed because before, when you had a patient on three different glaucoma drops doing different mechanisms of action, the next step was, I have no other options. They got to have surgery. Well, although we worry about compliance, technically, the definition has changed. You actually could add uh, that fourth medication. You now have you know, a completely different mechanism of action with, with rock inhibitors. And so that, that's changed a little bit when we think of, of medical, medical therapy. Uh, probably the other thing I'm, I'm most excited about is, is the work being done in, in drug delivery. I think optometry will play a role uh, in drug delivery. Some of the devices that are going to be coming out will be devices that optometrists will be involved with. Uh, for example, you know, a bimatoprost ring, uh, something that I think optometry will be involved with. I also think when you look at uh, punctal plugs that are being studied for drug delivery in glaucoma, that's something optometry will be heavily involved with. And so that excites me because if we're able to still get medication to where it needs to go and lower intraocular pressure and patients don't have to have a bottle in their hand to do it, that's going to help with compliance. And I don't think these devices will probably, again, take patients that are on three medications down to zero. But if we could take a patient from three medications down to two or two to one or one to zero, we're, we're going to only give them a better chance of being compliant. It's going to make optometrists' life better with dealing with compliance issues, but it's also going to make our patients' lives better. And what will the level of involvement be? Will you be putting in the rings on the plugs yourselves? or, or what? what uh, I'm not sure what goes into those. Uh, what will go into those procedures? Yeah, once they're approved and, and in optometry's hands, you know, a lot of optometrists right now, we place punctal plugs all the time for dry eye. Mm-hmm. You know, so sure, this should true. be something yep. that optometry should be heavily involved with. Uh, when you think about the contact lenses that we do with, you know, scleral lenses, there's there's work being done on on contact lenses that elute glaucoma medications, and so that's something that optometry should definitely be heavily involved with. That's going to be well within. Uh, our scope. So we've talked about glaucoma. We can continue to do so, of course, because we're talking about it next month. But uh, are there any uh, products outside of glaucoma or outside of uh, outside of dry eye that uh, have you particularly excited? That's a really great question. You know, being in a in a surgical practice and dealing with patients that come in a lot with cataract surgery, I kind of shift my thoughts to that a little bit. And and one particular technology, uh, the light adjustable lens, uh, is exciting to me. More exciting for patients because they're going to have the ability to have 
something that's actually implanted and then adjustable uh, after the surgery. So that's a technology that that I think uh, is exciting. I'm also excited just with the work that's being done with new IOLs. There'll be some some new IOLs coming out uh, in the next few years, and you know more options. As I said earlier, Thomas, I'm a big believer in giving patients options, and to be able to offer these patients um, different options that fit their needs, fit their visual demands uh, on the cataract surgery side, I think is exciting. And again, although as an optometrist, I'm not doing the cataract surgery, uh, I get to see a lot of happy patients that get these types of implants. And my colleagues who are in private practice that refer these patients, uh, as these technologies continue to improve, you know, they get a lot more happy patients back as well. Uh, that makes their lives easier. And it helps them build their practices because they're cutting edge. They're referring patients in for cutting edge technology. And it, it just... It, it just provides uh, superior care across the board, you know, for our patients on the optometry side as well as the ophthalmology side. Terrific. Well, it's it's a lot of uh, exciting things happening, which is why we're having the uh, OIS at SECO event next month. Thank you for uh, for taking part of that, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much, and I also am looking forward to that at SECO, and uh, and sure appreciate the conversation. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the OIS podcast. Once again, if you wouldn't mind giving us a hand by subscribing, by telling your friends, by giving us a ranking on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening to us on, that helps others find the podcast. Finally, you'd help us even more if you joined us at OIS, OIS at SECO rather, on February 21st in New Orleans. Still go to OIS.net to register. It's going to be a great day, a very first foray into optometry for OIS. We're very excited about it, and you should be as well. So join us on February 21st in New Orleans. Go to OIS.net to register. And, of course, tune in next week. We'll have another great tale of ophthalmology and optometry innovation on the OIS podcast. <laughs>